Hello, welcome to Late to It. I'm Naomi Frisby. I'm Kirsty Dill. And this is the podcast about reading books at the right time. Kirsty, what have you been reading on time this week? I have been reading a collection of essays by Rachel Bloom called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And if her name sounds familiar to you, she is the writer and star of the programme Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I know Naomi does not like. So this is not a recommendation (laughs) for her, but for everyone else, apart from Naomi, um, I do recommend this. It's um, it's just a collection of essays about her life. Essentially, it is about her upbringing, about being bullied at school. It's about her love of musicals and her love of Disney and you know, writing and how she came to write Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and her viral music. So she became sort of sort of first came to prominence um, for a kind of parody music video that she did called uh, Fuck Me Ray Bradbury, which was released um, on Ray Bradbury's 90th birthday. And it was because she loved the Martian Chronicles and she just reread it. And so kind of this wrote this viral sort of comedy song with a music video, put it on YouTube and it sort of went a bit, went a bit mad. Um, and that's how she kind of came to notice of, of sort of writers and agents and all that sort of stuff. So um, lots of really funny. I mean, it's very much in the vein of, if you like, Amy Poehler's book and Tina Fey and Mindy Kaling. It's all that sort of stuff. Um, what I liked about it is that you've got some very, very funny kind of self-deprecating essays. But she also writes, I think, very kind of humanely about the fact that she has OCD she's had OCD since she was a child it's come and gone at various points of her life and I think what she manages to do quite quite well is that sort of she pitches the right level between the kind of very funny you know slightly kind of puerile humor I mean she does a comedy song called um you can touch my boobies um you know that sort of it's sort of that level humor but then she writes incredibly movingly about you know, what has been quite a debilitating um, condition throughout her life. And, you know, it's popped up at various points. Um, she also writes about the fact that she collaborated for many years with Adam Schlesinger, who is probably best known to British audiences as the sort of singer-songwriter from Fountains of Wayne, as in Stacey's mum has got it going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm disappointed you didn't sing that, Kirsty. I would not do that to our listeners. I, I just don't think it's appropriate. Um, he was a very close friend and they collaborated a lot. He very sadly died in 2020 in the early months of the pandemic of COVID-19. And it happened at just a, like, just a few days after she'd given birth to her first child. So she she writes, actually right in the end, it's, actually, it's an epilogue that's added to the book because it sort of happened right you know at the end of the process um about having to look after her new baby who'd also been in the NICU had been poorly at birth and then um bring her home at the same time of having lost her best friend mm-hmm. um so yeah it's it's just it's all of those good things it's 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 funny and touching and very warm um I recommend it but not to Naomi <laughs> sorry no, just, it's fine. I just, I was just entertained by, you know, is, is, is it a book that's going to change my life? No. Did it entertain me a great deal for a couple of days while I read it? Yes, it did. Yeah, I do like those sort of books. I read the Amy Poehler book and, yeah, and would read Tina Fey's. I, I um, post on my Instagram account about things I've been watching and I actually just watched the other week um, 
Girls Five ever, which Tina Fey is the executive producer of. So I'm very much like a fan of her work. So I'm not saying I wouldn't enjoy the book. I just crazy ex-girlfriend. I can't bear it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What have you been reading? I have been reading one of our authors from last series, his new book. That was very badly <laughs> articulated. Uh, so Fernanda Melkor has got a new book out. Um, <laughs> the title of which... Some range, haven't we? Going from Rachel Bloom to Fernanda Melkor. <laughs> yeah, we, we've gone dark very quickly. Um, so the title <laughs> is Paradise. <laughs> However, I'm not sure that's the correct, correct, correct pronunciation. <laughs> Connect pronunciation, correct pronunciation. Um, I went to see her at an event at Blackwell's Manchester um, earlier in the week and there was some discussion about how to pronounce the title and it was a bit like that video of Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie talking about the difference between that Saoirse Ronan saying that English-speaking English people who are not Irish can't, can't pronounce the name correctly. And I can't tell the difference and Margot Robbie can't tell the difference. And I got one of my Irish friends to say her name and I still can't tell the difference. So it's a bit like that. So I apologise to native Spanish speakers, particularly Mexican Spanish speakers, because I have surely mangled that. But it's called Paradise. It's spelled P-A-R-A-D-A-I-S. There we go. Um, and apparently the because the it's set in this complex, um, this gated fancy house complex, um, which is called Paradise, and it's meant to be sort of mimicking that American style. So apologies if I've mangled that, but there we go. <laughs> that's, that's the reason behind it. And it's quite short. It's a novella, really. It's written in a similarish style to Hurricane Season in that you get that sort of circular um, bit with the chapters um, that we talked about when we discussed that. Uh, but this is just centred around two characters, Mainly, one is Franco Andrade, and the other is his friend Polo. Franco's from a rich family, lives inside the Gators community. Polo is from a poor family who live outside. They've both um, been excluded from school because they're naughty boys. Um, Franco's family solution to that is they're going to send him to military school because they're rich. Polo's mum's um, response to that is to drag him down to the Gators community and get him to sign on the dotted line to be a gardener and it pisses him off because he has to like clean out people's pools after the time that he's supposed to have finished and yeah basically do all these jobs that he don't really want to be doing what annoys him more about that is that his cousin who is moved who has moved in with them is pregnant and so according to him sits on her arse all day doing nothing and there's also like they hate women. They absolutely, the pair of them, hate women. Um, Franco wants, Franco basically wants to have sex with Senora Marianne, who is this um, beautiful woman who's married to a TV star who lives within the complex. The way he talks about her is disgusting. As I'm, if, if you, I mean, we read Hurricane Season, you know what sort of language like to expect. Um, it all builds into this like horrendous, event which doesn't play out um doesn't play out quite as I thought it was going to which I think was a strength in mm. that you, you know what he thinks he's going to do when he gets there and it doesn't quite play out like that which oh, it's still grim it's still really like awful um I can't say I enjoyed it <laughs> <laughs> it, it is compelling I read it quite quickly 
Um, I have, I, I'm not sure what I think about it. I have some questions about why she wrote it. And when she was at the event, she talked about wanting to write about the way that people, that women are seen and treated in Mexico. I sort of felt a bit like I'd read it before, but mm. I'd like caveat that with, I think I've read this a lot before from probably Western women. And um, I was thinking about, it made me think about, um, I had to check the title of this, um, Selva Almada's Dead Girls, which is mm. and is nonfiction, but talks about these girls who've been murdered and have disappeared. Um, yeah, so I think probably, I mean, she talks about where she fits within within her community's writing. And I think probably it is a like, you know, good addition to that. But I did, yeah, I did wonder from sort of my perspective what it added in terms of the way they behave. Um, like, you know, <laughs> we're, we're recording this on the day that a Tory MPs got suspended for watching porn in Houses of Common and, you know, Angela Rayner was been on front page at Daily Mail because apparently she distracts Boris Johnson by crossing and uncrossing her legs so you know you know like you just absorb in this shit every day so a bit of me is like I think I felt like this for a while I'm not sure how much of that I want to read in fiction anymore not that people shouldn't write it and and I can't I actually can't bear the thought of sitting down and writing it but maybe that's just mm -hmm. me do you know what I mean I'm just like I see this every day but fair place the writers who are you know highlighting that and she does it like stylistically it's brilliant but yeah. yeah I mean she's an incredible writer um I haven't read Paradise Paradise um I do want to read it um but I haven't but yeah I mean even from hurricane season I, mean, I think well we go back to the last couple of seasons ago to hear what I thought about it then but it was one of those books that was incredible uh, just incredibly well written quite difficult to read <laughs> you know you kind of have to gear yourself up for it don't you yeah and you very much have to with this I realized that I forgot to say that this is also translated by Sophie Hughes who translated translated Hurricane Season and I mean she does a brilliant job there was a really interesting conversation actually um at the event about how um Malcor and Hughes work together and how Hughes mm. is trying to capture because Malcor was saying she uses a quite specific dialect um, and how Hughes is trying to capture that in English and how that translates. And um, yeah, and the kind of language, there, was, there were these conversations about how, how many times the word cunt comes up. <laughs> um, and and Malcor thought that that wouldn't stand in the English, but it does, which, you know, yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, so it's published by Fitzcarraldo, same as Hogan Season. There's a nonfiction collection coming soon as well oh, is there? yes so oh. I'm excited to read that I'm, I'm I think she's brilliant like the event the other night was fantastic she's got loads mm. to say she's really interesting I just yeah I questioned I questioned how much I want to read about two little boys who you know hate women <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a fair question to be honest <laughs> um so we'll Move on to the two books we're talking about this week. Um, yeah, just before we do, Kirsty, can I just do a little trigger warning for people? Yeah, you can. <laughs> so the two books we'll talk about this week are both about suicide 
Uh, one is about the aftermath of, of someone's suicide and one is about someone who is suicidal. So if that is not something you feel able to listen to at this point, please do turn us off, uh, go do something else. I will put a caveat in there though, that the second book we're talking about, All My, My Puny Sorrows by Marion Taves, does this so well, like looking at both the person who's suicidal and family members who are trying to support that person, that it's one of those books that if you feel able and want to read something by someone who has um, had that experience in their own life, she does it brilliantly and it's worth reading if that's something that you feel like you want to come back to. And yeah, sometimes you just need to read that somebody else feels the same way about something that you do and she does it brilliantly. So that's just my our little caveat for this episode. Sorry, Kirsty, off you go. No, no, um, all very good, very good um, morning and very much seconded. Um, the first book we're going to talk about is Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnott, uh, which came out from Corsair. And that came out, I should check these things before we record, in 2019. <laughs> um, and it was, well, 2019 in the US, 2020 in the UK. Um, and then we are also going to talk about, as Naomi just said, All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, which was uh, published by Faber in 2014. Um, we're going to start with Mostly Dead Things. This is a book I've been really looking forward to reading. Um, <laughs> and I was, and I, I've had it recommended to me by lots of people. Um, and it is about a woman called Jessalyn Morton, who is looking after the family taxidermy business uh, just after the suicide of her father, who uh, had previously run the business, her grandfather before that. The rest of the family is generally falling apart. Her mother is um, developing a new line in sexually explicit art to do with taxidermy which is, is great. Um, she's got a brother called Milo, who has recently been left by his wife, Bryn. He has two children with her who are um, sort of young adults by this point, teenagers, young adults. And essentially the novel is about this, well, the back of the book calls it a darkly funny family portrait, a peculiar big hearted look at love and loss and the ways we live through them together. I would not necessarily agree with the big hearted, mm. warm, big hearted idea, because I'm going to be upfront and go, I was really disappointed. And I'm really sad to report that because I was so looking forward to reading this. Um, it's also got, frankly, one of my favourite covers, as I alluded to on the last episode. <laughs> yeah. Taxidermy Mice uh, and Absinthe, great cover. <laughs> um, but I just thought, actually, this book ended up being quite dull. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was really disappointed as well. I was disappointed for lots of reasons. What I am going to do, though, because I am one for going on about all the things that I don't like, I am just going to say before we do that, that I loved the mum. Yeah, I did too, actually. And I don't know if this is to do with age, mm. that, like both of us are closer in age to the mum than we are to Yeah. who was annoying. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, I just I, I want a whole book from a perspective of the mum. Yeah, this was my issue with the book actually, is I felt all the time I was reading it like I'd aged out of it. 
what I struggled with was how we were meant to interpret the main character as we were reading. It's told from the main character's perspective. It's first person narration. Um, now that character is clearly damaged by her father's suicide, obviously. Um, her father very much set it up so that she would be the one that would find him. Um, he's left her this note that says basically you've got to look after the place you know I trust you you've got to do everything and I you know that sort of pressure is is horrendous and it doesn't give her any space to process her own grief etc I get that absolutely but her attitude towards her mother was just sort of abhorrent all the way through and I what I couldn't tell was whether we the reader were meant to be there with her kind of going oh god yeah your mom's so embarrassing what's she doing with that bore that sounded weird. Um, <laughs> that is that is pretty much the longest short of it, though. <laughs> but that's that's essentially what's going on. Her mum's taking some of these taxidermy pieces and um, adapting them and changing them, but it, it's consistently sexually explicit <laughs> um, and weird, and you know, very much the antithesis of what Jessalyn is is sort of trying to uh, keep going in her father's memory, which is this you know, high quality workmanship, absolutely pristine taxidermy. Um, so she's completely disgusted by what her mum's doing and is, you know, spends most of the novel trying to get her to stop working with this local art gallery owner called Lucinda, who is sort of bankrolling her mum and just like, oh my God, her art is so interesting. And, you know, you've got to let your mum, you know, do this and let her express herself. And what I couldn't tell is whether we, the reader, were meant to be there agreeing with everything Jessalyn was saying or whether we were meant to take issue with her. I really hope it's the latter. I really hope it, it you know, the, 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 she didn't intend for the mother to be cast as this, you know, figure, this kind of pathetic figure that is behaving completely over the top and ridiculousness, you know. But I... I if, if she didn't intend that, if she if she didn't intend us to have sympathy with the mother and we were meant to agree with the main character, for no, <laughs> not at all. And if we were meant to take issue with the main character and have sympathy with the mother, then I don't think it was done well enough mm. to make it clear that that's what, it, what you were supposed to do. Um, so that just made me quite cross, actually. And I think it's, I think, I think it is an age thing. As you were saying, I will stop talking a minute. I promise. Wow. Um, I think it is an age thing. I think there's also um, something for me about what something I find irritating generally sometimes. And I love a dysfunctional mother-daughter narrative as much as the next person, having frankly had one myself. Um, <laughs> But as a mother who has a relationship with her daughter, mm. which hopefully I'm going to cross myself and touch the woods and all that sort of stuff is not dysfunctional. Mm. Um, I do. I do find myself more and more going, can you leave the mums alone, would you? Like, they're not, <laughs> there's, not, there's this inherent thing that mothers are awful and they're always fucking up their kids and, you know, I'm starting I've got to that point in my life where I'm starting to have more more sympathy <laughs> with the mother um and not just the kind of the 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 daughter end you know as as yeah um so maybe that was me reading my own kind of oh my god can we not just leave mothers alone for a bit mm. into it 
as much as anything. But yeah, that's that's where I was with it. Well, I think like every character tried to tell Jessa, didn't they, to get a grip? Like her brother's very much mm. on, on their mum's side and tells her that, you know, she, she should talk to her and pay more attention and wonder why she's doing what she's doing. And Lucinda tells her the same. So, yeah, it. I think... I think for me, I think you're probably right that we've aged out of it because mm. I, I just found Jessalyn massively irritating and she did sort of go on an arc, but the arc was very much like the redemptive bit was very much shoved into the last little bit. Yeah. It got very repetitive hearing about how she didn't want to be vulnerable and that she'd taken on, she was very like a dad and Miles was the one that was empathetic and, you know, did all the feelings and she didn't do feelings and I'm like but that just creates a flat character that's not somebody who's rounded you like yeah we all have those days when we like shut off and don't want to talk to anybody but they're, they're not every day no even if you grieve it do you know what I mean there was nothing I don't know she didn't feel real it didn't feel rounded enough to be somebody who she just behaved in the same way over and over again until the point where she just decided to do something about it which like I said was really late on yeah and I felt like I'm not going to say what it was uh spoilers wise but I felt like the piece of action that precipitated that arc the event just felt like oh god we've got to like move the story on we've got to it it felt like a prop device it it Mm -hmm. just felt like it was coming in in neon lights going here comes a plot device this is what's (laughs) we're going on an arc people um I just didn't feel like it was very convincingly done um I felt like it was quite obvious I feel like there was a main character that just sort of disappeared at that point and there was sort of vague reference to Mm. her towards the end but she sort of disappeared without a trace and there was no it just it it felt slightly like there were certain set pieces in her head and she was trying to maneuver her characters between set pieces like there was a genuinely Mm. funny 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 moment with the mum obviously because she's the best character <laughs> where the mother unveils she invite, invites all the kind of neighborhood and her friends and family to the art gallery for the unveiling of her great project and she wheels out this uh, taxidermy boar with um a mannequin who is dressed up to resemble her now dead husband um with like lots of sexually explicit material and you know fetish gear and all this sort of stuff and of course her children and the neighbors you know the good you know good local community people are completely horrified um (laughs) it's a genuinely funny moment it was probably the best moment in the book to be honest but I felt like there were those points and she was just trying to get from one to the other do you know what I mean um the other thing I need to I feel like I have to mention is a couple of times she uses a really offensive word mm. for no apparent reason. Um, it's very American. It's I do very find American. American. It's a word that Americans use a lot that we find unacceptable. Yes, it is. And it's used twice in quite sharp succession. And I, yeah, and that sort of pulled me up quite short. I think I think for American readers, it probably wouldn't stand out so much mm. as you say. But for British readers, it 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 did kind of I did have to look twice and go my god did she just you know so I don't know if that's a thing on the editing whether that should have maybe been removed on the editorial process um 
but it was definitely jarring to me. Um, and then uh, before I go back, I feel like I need to get the negative stuff out of the way and then I'll go back <laughs> to talking more about how much I love her mum. Bryn is a character. Yeah. I hate her, Bryn. Hate I hate her. Bryn. She's a manic pixie dream girl. Yep. Bisexual version. Like yep. the worst bisexual version. So yep. she's the whole thing is that she had a thing with Jessa when they were at school, married Milo and carried on sleeping with Jessa. So if you want every like bisexual, terrible trope in there, she's duplicitous. Uh, she disappears at one point. What else do we get? Um, oh, promiscuous. Like, yeah, I, I just, didn't, just didn't get it. And this has been, this was up for a Lambda award. So I'm just like, what? Why? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I'm not bisexual and even I found offensive. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I also don't like that. I don't like the, so it bothered me from the beginning that she was with both of them and it's set in like Florida in this like, quotes, trashy family because it very much felt like a like trailer park. Do you know what I mean? It's a, if we talk about things we've seen before, we've seen and heard it all before and that, you know what I mean? It just becomes, and I'm not saying that perhaps there are families like that, but do you know, that don't mean that's what you get too often. Oh, there was so much about it that grated on me. <laughs> yeah. Everything was dirty. I mean, as I texted you at one point, if she used the word sour one more time, I was going to just start throwing things. I found it really distracting. And that's the repetitiveness thing again and I just I spent the whole time doing just clean your flat just clean your flat <laughs> yeah. just change your clothes and clean your flat like come on um yeah but okay so let's just talk about how great her mum is let, yeah. let us let us move on from the negative let us purify <laughs> ourselves let us refocus um on the joy that's her mum who has just you know become um has been liberated basically by the death of yes death of her husband and um I'm going to read actually quite a long section so apologies um but I just I just loved it it goes <laughs> do we have any spackle my mother had picked up the squirrel's head and was attaching it to a loose armadillo plate using the hot glue when she pulled back the gun the string broke midair giving the squirrel a plastic toupee of course, Libby, let me see. Go, let me go and see what I can find. On the floor beside my mother was a wheeled tray. It was covered at the top as if she were about to enjoy some room service. The cloth was white and crisp. You gonna have a sandwich? What? She gouged at the armadillo plate with an exacto, digging free random chunks. Oh, lunch, I forgot again. What's this then? I flipped back the napkin and looked down at a wide array of anatomy. Are these a couple of vulvas? There's a scrotal sack somewhere. She yanked the cloth from my hand and revealed the rest, a large metal tray covered with sexual organs. Ah, here it is. She jabbed her knife at a wrinkled wad rolling in the corner. What are you going to do with those? You'll see. Her attention went back to the exacto. She continued ramming her knife into the side of the armadillo plates, whittling holes roughly the size of quarters. Lucinda brought back several tubes of adhesive. Here you are. Wasn't sure what would work best, so I just brought everything we had. The work perverted all the things I loved about taxidermy. Our pieces, done right, left the animals whole and lifelike, as if they could step off the mount and wander right back out to the woods. My mother's animals were mangled and misshapen, slopped together like trash. It took away their dignity. Could we go now? I asked, pinching the bridge of my nose. I wish I'd stayed for another beer at the bar or that I'd called Milo to pick her up. 
Go sit out front if it bothers you that much. It doesn't bother me. I stared at the squirrel, its face stretched into a grimace of pain, though I knew it could no longer feel anything. Of course it does. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> Long bit, but it just gives everything that I loved about the mother who was just finally finding this freedom and learning how to express herself and sure it might have been a bit clumsy and a bit mad and a bit weird mm. but you know as a woman and there's a line that I know you really loved that you know summed up her marriage that was now suddenly free of that um I, yeah I just want to I want a whole book of her yes I think she's amazing yeah the line was she says it's like live, it was like living inside a clenched fist which I thought was a real way to describe that sort of controlling marriage and she's she spent all that time with this person who's like riddled with anxiety and thinks things should be done in a particular way and finally she can just do whatever she wants and I think and listening to you you read that part of me feels like have I been unfair on Jessa that she's she's grieving and she can't deal with the fact that her mum wants to, she feels like her mum wants to rip everything apart I suppose it's back to what we were talking about um last week I think it was that point when you realize that your parents are you know people mm. not just your parent but yeah like we said about the writing I'm not sure it's done well enough for that to come through they don't feel round enough no no and it, it it's annoying because I really wanted to love it and the thing is I still mm. want to read her other book that's out with teeth I think that sounds really interesting and I you know as we were saying ourselves earlier she's great on Twitter yeah like I really want to love this, but I didn't love it. And I feel really guilty for not loving it. But there we are. Yes. So it goes. So it goes. Shall we instead talk about a book that we both completely adores? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another so book where the mother is amazing. Um, so, yeah, more books about mothers. Um, yeah, so All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, and I'm so glad that I know now how to pronounce it because I did not know before, which, as I said, was published by Faber. Um, this is about two sisters called Elfrida and Yolandi, which are Elf and Yoli for short. Um, they are very close. They love each other a great deal. They've been brought up uh, in a Mennonite community by their parents. Um, but their family has been sort of haunted by suicide essentially before the novel opens their father has taken his own life um and we find the novel with elf who by this point is well they're both in their 40s but elf is a world-renowned pianist um she's glamorous and wealthy and happily married but she is suicidal and has been for a very long time. This is not her first suicide attempt, um, but she is in hospital having taken an overdose when we first, when we first meet her. Yoli, however, um, is not as successful or glamorous or wealthy or any of that, but she is a writer. She's been writing a, a series of children's books about rodeos uh, she's desperately trying to write her literary novel about a boat and failing um she is desperately trying to keep her sister alive there is also their mother Lottie who is a joy of a character she's in her 70s she's sort of innocently kind of stoic in a way she doesn't give a shit um 
but she doesn't in some way she doesn't notice that she doesn't give a shit do you know what I mean mm. um they've left the Mennonite community and um yeah that's where it basically opens and as we were saying before we started recording this in a way there isn't a huge amount of plot in this book mm. it's going back and forward in time looking at their childhood looking at their earlier life looking at um what's happening now about the fact that elf just desperately wants to die she is you know devastated that her attempt has not been successful she spends a lot of the novel begging Yoli to take her to Switzerland with the implication being uh, to an assisted suicide clinic, um, which is something that Yoli kind of grapples with um, and can't figure out what the right thing to do is. It's also looking at the other people in their lives. There's Lottie and also her sister, Tina. Um, and we find out that, you know, they... They were two of kind of a huge number of siblings, most of whom are now dead. In fact, all of whom are now dead, nearly, nearly all. So this is just a family that has been completely surrounded by death. And as I said to you before we started recording, it's sort of a novel about broken hearts in many ways, whether that's mm. physically or metaphorically. <laughs> Continue. What does that mean? Well, I was thinking, well, you know what I mean? Like the um, Tina, the, the Lottie's sister, dies in the novel of heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've also got um, Elf and the father having died by suicide, who are, I would suggest, heartbroken. Mm. Um, okay. Sorry, was that a bit? No, I just, I, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by it. So I just asked you to you know extrapolate it okay now I'm embarrassed <laughs> <Where> you go <laughs> <laughs> no, I need to be embarrassed I just wanted to know um yeah I don't know what to say about this book apart from like we spent about 20 minutes before we started recording just reading each, each other our favorite bits and we could just do that with it because like that's oh god I I started this and I read about 14 pages before I texted you and said this is one of the best books I've ever read 40 yeah. pages she her writing is beautiful and I don't tend to go for like and I don't mean beautiful in the way that um I stopped myself there <laughs> I just keep it up to myself now because I think when people say beautiful writing they mean that horrendous like overladen with images type writing and I can't bear that stuff this is like quite plain language it's the way that she builds her sentences you know what I'm gonna do I'm just gonna read a bit to her <laughs> to show what I mean so there's a bit where they're talking about um playing the piano so Yuli basically the Mennonites hate that she plays piano and there's this wonderful scene near the beginning where they come around to the house complaining about it and she takes the cover off the piano (laughs) plays a rack man in half piece (laughs) like so loudly that they can't do anything but like hear it vibrate through the whole house it's brilliant and she gets the opportunity um to go away and um yeah where's she going she goes to Norway for a recital and this is while she's still at school and so they're in the car and um (laughs) Yoli says to her you're never coming back are you I whispered to her she told me that was the stupidest thing she'd ever heard we looked at the fields and snow she was wearing her white leather choker with the blue bead and an army jacket we were driving over black ice 
Is that your question for the interview? She asked me. Yeah, I said. Yuli, she said. You should have prepared other questions. Okay, I said. What's so hot about playing the piano? She told me that the most important thing was to establish the tenderness right off the bat, or at least close to the top of the piece, just a hint of it, a whisper, but a deep whisper because the tension will mount, the excitement and the drama will build. I was writing it down as fast as I could. And when the action rises, the audience might remember the earlier moments of tenderness and remembering will make them long to return to infancy, to safety, to pure love. Then you might move away from that, put the violence and agony of life into every note, building, building, still, until there is an important decision to make, return to tenderness even briefly, glancingly, or continue on with the truth, the violence, the pain, the tragedy to the very end. Which I think, like, sums up, she's written what the entire book's about in that paragraph. Mm right near the beginning but also there's what hang on I'm just trying to work out there that is for the bit about the playing so from she told me that the most important thing was to establish to the very end is one sentence it doesn't feel like it though Mm -hmm. it's done so cleverly that you don't feel like you're listening to one really long sentence um and that is sort of sums up everything I love about this book like it feels completely effortless, the writing. And she's dealing with such dark, difficult, emotional, bleak stuff. You spend, you know, most of your book, basically what, as you were saying to me, as you know, you're spending your time being propelled through a book, trying to find out whether someone kills himself or not. Mm. I mean, it's bleak as hell, but she manages to write it in such a way that it's not only quite light in places but mm. funny and warm and you know all those adjectives that were used on the back of mostly dead things but big-hearted and <laughs> those are the words I would use about this book it's it's generous and warm and incredibly tender but there are so many genuinely funny bits as well it's just beautifully beautifully done and more protagonists in their 40s please yes I love the fact they're both in their 40s. So there's this brilliant bit um, in the hospital. I think this might be the second time that Elf's in the hospital. I'm not sure at this point. Um, <laughs> but they have this massive argument about basically who's worst off. And still she manages to do this in a way that doesn't... Yolandi never comes off as being awful about it she's trying to express how she feels about the fact that her sister's trying to kill herself and she so this is both I think both the bit about what her life's like in her 40s and also the bit you said about it being funny mm. have you ever thought about what I might need I said has it occurred to you ever in your life that I'm the one that's colossally fucked up and can use some sisterly support every once in a while? Have you ever gotten an airplane every two weeks to rush to my side when I'm feeling like shit and wanting to die? Has it ever occurred to you that I'm not okay? That everything in my life is embarrassing? That I got knocked up twice by two different guys and had two divorces and two affairs that were, are, not only a nightmare but also a cliche and that I'm broke and writing a shitty little book about books that nobody wants to publish and sleeping around with men who fucking ooze nicotine into their sheets from their entire bodies so they leave outlines like dead what said elf 
has it ever occurred to you that I've also lost my father to suicide, that I also am having a hard time getting over it, and that I am also trying to find meaning in my pathetic, stupid life, and that I also often think the whole thing is a ridiculous farce and that the only intelligent response to it is suicide, but that I pull back from that conclusion because it creates a certain earnest that is unpalatable. Like your fucking Virginia Woolf or one of those guys, way too cool to live or too smart or too in tune with the tragedy of it all or whatever. You want to create some bullshit legacy for yourself as brilliant and doomed. And yeah. then on the following page, I've skipped a bit here, but she says, they talk a bit more about being doomed. Uh, about being doomed. And Elf tries to explain how she feels. She says, look, Yuli, I'm trying to explain to you this incredible pressure I felt to quit then. Stop being perfect. That doesn't mean you die, you moron. Can't you just be like the rest of us, normal and sad and fucked up and alive and remorseful? Get fat and start smoking and play the piano badly. Whatever. At least you know that you will eventually get what you want most in life. What do I want most in life? Death. <laughs> it's just great. I'm just, I am just going to spend the next 15 minutes just reading bits out. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, she especially as the as the novel goes on and you've got this situation where elf having been released from hospital um has made another attempt on her life and is back in hospital again um but at the same time tina we just said uh, has kind of very unexpectedly had a cardiac event and is awaiting surgery um and obviously lots of the family are kind of flocking to the hospital what she's amazing on is the difference in treatment when you're there in hospital mm -hmm. for a physical ailment rather than a uh, kind of psychiatric one. Um, you know, there's the whole thing all the way through where every time um, Yoli or anyone like Nick, who's um, Elf's husband or any other member of the family, try and phone Elf at the hospital, the nurses won't refuse to take the phone to her and say, well, if she won't come out, if she won't come leave her room and rejoin them, we're not taking the phone to her. You're not allowed to take her food because she's meant to be joining the sort of community table, as it were. And they just, you know, there's all this stuff around behaviour. You're not behaving properly. Whereas, of course, the aunt who was there for, for heart problems, everyone, you know, even the nurses are friendlier. Everyone's making jokes and, you know, that sort of thing. But <laughs> there's a bit where... Um, Uncle Frank has also come to see Elf while she, he's there seeing Tina. He put his arm around her and said, blessings on you, girl. And she said, she told him she was sorry that he had to visit her here. He said, no, we don't apologise for being sick, for being human, for being weary. Uncle Frank has obviously never been a woman. <laughs> um, but um, something else I wanted to talk about was books. Mm which you kind of alluded to there and those kind of references to Virginia Woolf and all you know, these tragic female poets. Um, there's this theme all the way through where Elf is trying to convince Yoli to read all these poets that she loves. And Yoli never has, basically, even though she's the writer, but she doesn't, she's, she's not bothered wearing, uh, reading all this stuff. Um, so there's a bit now, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to, um, spoiler alert, but probably not that much of a spoiler, frankly. Towards the end of the novel, um, Elf is uh, finally complete suicide. Um, and the sort of last, I don't know, not quite a quarter, a bit less than that of the novel is, is the family sort of dealing with the fallout of that. Basically, she's she's got a pass to be out of hospital for her birthday. And what she's done is convince Nick to leave her alone um, 
and goes to the library and gets some books for her. And while he's away, he's she's she's gone off. Well, Elf, I thought you're so clever getting to leave you alone on the pretext of getting books, of going to the library. Of course he'd do it. Books are what save us. Book books are what don't save us. It's just such good writing. Well, yeah, and that whole sort of concept that people who love books talk about as if like books make you a better or a different person or, you know, and I'm like, yes, perhaps to an extent they sometimes do. So one of the things you mentioned when we were talking before and is the fact that her mum and Tina were obsessed with reading crime novels. Mm. And I said to you, but that's what I did during the first lockdown. I couldn't read. I couldn't read at all. First, like, couple of weeks, I was just catatonic, basically. And that's what I that's what got me back reading was because crime novels are safe. There's a the, mm -hmm. somebody sorting it out, like evil gets locked up or dies or whatever, but it's it fits a pattern, everybody's safe at the end, everything's all right. I mean, I know occasionally you get one that's got that like last line where you're like, Oh, are they really <laughs> are they coming back? Is there something else out there? But generally they're wrapped up. So there is a sort of like safety in that structure in that. So even though they're about death, it's, mm. it's the death of, I suppose, the bad people get caught on and or die. <laughs> and, and things follow an expected course. I mean, mm. you know, you've got Lottie and Tina who have lost basically everyone in their lives. And of course, we lose Tina during the course of the novel. Mm. And so much of that will have come unexpectedly. Certainly Tina's death was. And the, the joy of a crime novel a lot of the time is that it follows to a certain extent a an expected path murders happen murder is investigated murder is solved generally um and i can well imagine that's actually a very comforting sort of comforting environment for people whose lives have just been completely taken over by unexpected death there are there are two bits <laughs> to mention in response to that and laughing because one of the, one of them involves a guy that yearly refers to as sad jason because <laughs> that's what they called him at school and basically a car breaks down and he's the like nearest mechanic who could look after it and she ends up shagging him <laughs> and he gives her tips on how to write i loved all the art bits they're just fucking funny um and he uh says <laughs> She talks about how she's tried to write this book about this person trapped at sea. And he goes, um, he said, no offence, but wouldn't he be able to explain to her that he was trapped on this boat in this times with technology and stuff, a text or whatever? I know I said, but for some reason he can't. Okay, said Jason, but what reason? I told him that I was having structural problems and he said he told me he thought my structure was amazing and worked really well. And I said, ha ha, thanks, yours too. Oh boy. I think the main thing he said is that it should really rock. What should rock? I asked him. The story, he said, it should just move really fast, like pedal to the metal so it doesn't get boring. Plus, it's hard to write, right? You want to go in, get the job done and get out, like when I worked for Renee's septic tank cleaning. <laughs> and she goes, I considered this and realised that it was the best writing advice I'd received in years in all my life. <laughs> that is the exact opposite of how this entire book's written. She was clearly saying <laughs> it was brilliant. And the other thing, like, I really wanted to mention this because it's something that I find. So I'm fascinated with time and how, like, time's not really a thing. It's a thing we constructed. I know, like, the, you know, 
day and night and we circle around the sun and all that stuff but still it's a human construct and I have massive problems with time like I've had to learn not to be late for stuff and not stress myself out because time's weird <laughs> and Yoli thinks the same thing and she says um so this is really early on when she's uh, in the hospital and Yoli's visiting her and she says I tell her all right I'll leave but I'll be back tomorrow she says isn't it funny how every second every minute every day month year is accounted for capable of being named when time or life is so wieldy, so intangible and slippery this makes her feel compassion towards the people who invented the concept of telling time how hurtful she says how beautifully futile how perfectly human I, yeah it's just it's great um and let's talk about Lottie because I loved her so much yes. she's like this perfect combination of you know quite kind of naive in some ways but also very sure of herself she you know throughout the the, the book we've got these allusions to their um original sort of upbringing in this kind of Mennonite community in the East Village um and there's this kind of this spectral mass of Mennonite priests who kind of move around and when they go to visit someone to tell them off for something, um, you know, they refuse to come out, come in one car, they all come in separate cars. So it looks more menacing. It's like these, you know, 12 or 13 people, you know, all park outside your house and kind of loom up the driveway. And she's utterly resistant. Like she just won't mm -hmm. take any of the nonsense. You know, there's the, the bit you were talking about where um, Elf starts playing the Rachmaninoff. Lottie's, Lottie won't come out the kitchen. She refuses to come out and play the warm sort <laughs> yeah. of host. Let me get you refreshments. Would you like some cake? She refuses to do all of that. So there's this sort of grit to her, which also there has to be by the, you know, she's seen so much. She's lost her husband. She's lost her daughter. She's lost so many siblings. There's a real grit to her as well. But towards the end when um, Yoli... Um, convinces her to move to Toronto with her and Yoli's got two children one of whom Nora is still young enough to, to live at home she's sort of middle mid-teens her older son Will is off in New York with his girlfriend um, and there's these bits where you know Lottie doesn't understand why people don't stop and smile at her in the street and she she goes into these desperately cool um, <laughs> shops and doesn't you know tries to make small talk with these kind of stick like 20 somethings who are desperately trying to get away with her and kind of giving her the side eye. And she's just completely oblivious, either oblivious or just, just keeps killing people with kindness. But my favorite bit, there's this great bit, which I'm just going to read. So she recovers as she does. And to celebrate, she and Nora and I took a trip to NYC to see Will and Zoe. They took us to MoMA, to a show where everyone was naked and in pain. It was the Marina Abramovich show. It was the talk of the town. All of us gallery goers huddled in one room, wondering how we'd get to the next one. There was only a narrow doorway that we had to pass through, but there were two suffering naked people standing face to face in the doorway, so we would all have to take turns squishing up against them as we went through. Nobody made a move to go through the doorway. The kids and I had lost track of mum and when she and when she was wandering around looking at things. We were whispering about certain celebrities we saw in the room, Nora knew them all. They were fashion designers and actors, but the rest of us were clueless. All the people were clustered together, getting restless and murmuring and wanting to move to the next room, but wondering how to get through the door. Then Will says, hey, there's grandma. And we looked towards the narrow doorway where the naked man and woman stood facing each other. Nobody had gone through it yet. Then we saw mum in her purple cords and windbreaker standing at the doorway with her hands on her hips. Oh my God, said Nora, she's going through. 
She went sideways through the doorway and her stomach grazed the man's penis. Then she stopped in the middle, right there between the man and the woman. She didn't hurry through at all. She was savouring it. She looked up at the ma naked man's face, into his eyes. He was expressionless and she smiled at him and nodded. She was greeting him politely. Then she somehow turned around in that tight space to face the woman and she looked into her eyes too and smiled and nodded. And then she smiled back at all of us huddled in the first room as, all, as if to say, all right, people, let's go, follow me. And she stepped through and one by one, the rest of us followed her. I'm glad you read that bit because I'm crying again and I've read that bit three times now. Oh, God. Oh, it's just... It's partly that, like, if people are wondering who Marina Abramovich is, you will have seen the clip of one of her pieces that she did where she literally just sat in a chair um, mm. and people could come and sit and her ex-lover turned up. And it's, like, one of the most powerful pieces of performance art that I've ever seen. And I don't think I could actually go to one of her pieces because I'd just be a wreck. Mm. But the the whole, the way that Tibbs uses that with the mum, who is just, like we said, an absolute stalwart. And the fact that she's showing she's showing him how to live. Yeah. And, and wow, wow. Wow. There's a line as well. She was our table. She'd always been our table. Mm. Every time absolutely gets me so I want I want a novel about her <laughs> I want a novel about the mum from mostly dead things I'd like them to meet each other yes they would be an excellent pairing perhaps they we need would. to do a fanfic thing Kirsty Lottie and Libby Lottie <laughs> would sort Libby right out ignore See? your daughter just crack on love come on I thought this was going down a very different fanfic <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Kirsty. <laughs> oh God, we're back to the pigeons. Um, <laughs> yes, on that note, next week, uh, two rather different books, A Storm by Akeem Belogan and I Who Have Never Known Men by Jacqueline Hartman, translated by Roz Schwartz. Dystopian week. Dystopian week. Mm. Yeah. So, more darkness. <laughs> very on brand in the meantime you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or you can follow me and Kirsty on Twitter where we post about books uh, surprise surprise Kirsty is at the other Kirsty and I'm at Naomi Frisbee thank you for listening thank you